Why are we going back to such ancient history? This series is not, after all, an introduction to the history of philosophy, but rather to philosophy itself, its ways of thinking, its major issues. And yet, to get clear on what philosophy is and how it differs from religion on the one hand and science on the other, a bit of its history is helpful. In discussing these ancient philosophers in the next few lessons, the pre-Socratic, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, I'll be distilling from them the kinds of issues and intuitions that remain relevant today. What question did the first philosophers try to answer? Let's go back to that first question that we ask in trying to get our bearings. Where are we? What is the nature of this reality? in which we find ourselves. What's its ontological furniture? This was the question that the first Greek philosophers, the Ionian philosophers, pondered. We collectively call these earliest philosophers pre-Socratic because they came before the 4th century BCE Athenian philosopher Socrates. What was the intuition that lay behind their questions? They had what we can call the reductive intuition, the intuition that there is an underlying simplicity not immediately apparent in appearance, but which can be arrived at through the process of reasoning about those appearances. Multiplicity can be reduced to simplicity. The seeming chaos, the arbitrary randomness, can be reduced to a hidden order. An intuition that was shared by all of the earliest philosophers is that behind this great variety, there is unity, a unity of stuff out of which is generated all things. And behind the seeming chaos of one thing randomly following another, or even worse, the kind of arbitrariness of things happening because of the actions and whims of those capricious gods. Behind all this, there is an entirely natural order, a law-like order, nomological, we now say from the Greek word nomos, for law. And because there is a hidden order, there is the possibility of predictability and gaining some control over nature. The Ionian philosopher Thales, who was, according to Aristotle, the first philosopher, supposedly predicted an eclipse, which greatly impressed his contemporaries. And the stuff out of which all things are generated was, according to Thales, water, which seems a fairly counterintuitive, not to speak of crude hypothesis. But the important point isn't the content of Thales' hypothesis, but rather the act of hypothesizing itself, the going beyond appearances to try to grasp a reality of unifying simplicity. Thales' fellow Ionian philosopher, Anaximander, allowed himself to be more abstract in his hypothesizing, conceptualizing an underlying something he called the aperon, which means the unbounded, out of which all things are generated, which you can regard as a first approximation to our later scientific conception of matter. Another pre-Socratic philosopher who came later in the 5th century BCE, Democritus, also an Ionian, went even further in the direction of yet 
to be science, hypothesizing that there exists invisible itty-bitty bits that compose all things and which he called atoms, Greek for indivisible. He reasoned that we can't keep dividing things up into smaller and smaller parts, that eventually we have to get to something that is indivisible. And it's the putting together of these atoms that results in the things that we observe. He conceptualized the atoms as differing in shapes and sizes and also in what allows them to clump together into things, some of them having hooks and eyes and others balls and sockets. Another important pre-Socratic thinker has a name you probably recall from high school geometry, Pythagoras. He hypothesized as to the hidden nature of reality that what it was is it's constituted of the relationship between numbers. All of them, he thought wrongly, could be expressed as the ratio of whole numbers. The seals a vision of great orderliness underlying the seeming arbitrariness of appearances. Pythagoras was reportedly inspired by the discovery, perhaps his, that the pitch of a tightly held string when plucked is exactly proportional to its length in ways that can be expressed as the ratio between whole numbers. So you take a string and you half it, and then you pluck it, it will play a pitch that is an octave higher than when unhalved. Divide the string into fourths, you go up two octaves. Random divisions of the string, not done according to the ratios between whole numbers, produces dissonance, unpleasant sounds, but ratios give us perfect harmonies. The pre-Socratic philosophers were proto-physicists and cosmologists posing their questions and hypotheses before there was an experimental methodology to tackle them. That experimental methodology would itself emerge centuries later through philosophical thinking. Despite not being scientists, these earliest of philosophers demonstrate one of the most important proclivities of scientific thinking, which is trying to gather as wide an array of phenomena as possible and to bring them all under a unifying set of laws, laws that are so concise and yet so far-reaching in their consequences that they can be written on a t-shirt, like E equals MC squared. There's something intensely satisfying in such reductive explanations, not reductive in the pejorative sense that they are leaving something out, but rather in the expansive sense that they are drawing so much in. And no doubt the pre-Socratic philosophers felt something of this satisfaction. What they could never have known is how far these intuitions of theirs, the Ionian enchantment, would bring us. You can see how the intuitions that guided the underlying questions of these pre-Socratic philosophers, where are we, presuppose the distinction between appearance on the one hand and reality on the other. Appearances, the raw contents of our experiences delivered to us by way of our senses, has to be subjected to analysis in order for us to conceive of an underlying reality, whether it's Anaximander's Eperon, Democritus's Adams, Pythagoras's numerical ratios, what philosophers dub naive realism, that reality is exactly as it appears to us, that seeing is believing. This naive realism is, according to these pre-Socratic philosophers, naive. 
we can trace a continuity back from their rejection of naive realism to contemporary scientific world views. Think of how extraordinarily different from our everyday world of appearance is the world of, say, Einstein's relativity, in which appearances to the contrary, simultaneity, two events happening at the same time, is not absolute. Two events that seem to us simultaneous and in reality, as revealed by Einstein, time and space can't be conceived separately from each other. I mean, that is wild, but are interwoven into the four-dimensional manifold of space-time, whose geometry isn't the Euclidean geometry that describes the world of our appearances, but is instead non-Euclidean, a geometry in which parallel lines do meet, a kind of mathematics that Pythagoras could never have gotten his head around. Though what he did imagine was that it would be mathematics that would best express the underlying structure of reality. Einstein himself acknowledges the debt. Here is what he wrote, one of my favorite passages from Einstein. I am convinced that we can discover by means of purely mathematical constructions, the concepts and the laws connecting them with each other, which furnish the key to the understanding of natural phenomena. Experience remains, of course, the sole criterion of the physical utility of a mathematical construction, but the creative principle resides in mathematics. In a certain sense, therefore, I hold it to be true that pure thought can grasp reality as the ancients dreamt, unquote. If there were a heaven, I think Pythagoras would be smiling.